feels great when we can hear the scriptures read out by a different voice. And it's awesome when it's someone like Milan and what God has done in his life. Uh, I have a question to start off this morning for you. And it's, um, I know that this isn't really the way of Cascades, but I was up at a camp for a week. And at this camp, when you ask a question, people just shout out. People shoot their hands up. And the part, part of it is because they get rewarded with either candy or uh, chapel socks, we call them, because kids need clean socks, and they usually get them dirty pretty quick at camp. So here's what I'm going to ask you. What do you think is the opposite of kindness? Feel free to shout out. What's the opposite of kindness? Unkindness, yeah, thank you, Rosemary. Yeah, it's pretty, like, literal, but yep, unkindness. Anything else? What comes to mind when you think of, you have to think of two, two polar opposites, kindness on one end, on the other end it is greed, yep, yep. What else? Selfishness, yep. Rude, yeah. What else? Pardon? Yes, not concerned at all, yeah. Yeah, all of these are right. I wonder if you also have thought of harshness or bitterness. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul will contrast bitterness with kindness. He says, get rid of all bitterness, and then he proceeds to list off all these other things. And then he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And that Greek word for bitterness is pronounced not Pikachu, but Pikria. Pikria. All the millennials, you know what I'm talking about. Pikria is the Greek word. And as a verb, it's pronounced Pikrino. And that word, this verb, that, that Pikrino is what Paul uses in Colossians 3. When he talks about telling, telling husbands not to be harsh with their wives. And so this word, well, to be harsh, it means to turn sour or to make bitter, to become sour or embittered. Don't become sour. Don't become bitter. Don't become ungentle, unpleasant, crude. When you look up this word harsh in our dictionaries, one of the explanations you'll see is grim or unpleasantly severe. Harsh. Harsh. See, there's, here's this problem that you and I face as followers of Jesus. Culturally, Christians are not renowned for their kindness. Culturally. There's this guy, his name is John Tyson. He says we have this reputation deficit when it comes to kindness. Culturally, we're more likely to be known for being defensive or aggressive or unpleasantly rough. And it doesn't help that when you watch some shows, like The Office, there are characters like Angela, who happen to portray Christians in such a way where they are aggressive and harsh and rough on the edges and very judgmental. In 2022, in December, Barna Research, they interviewed teens and adults of no faith, asking them about their personal experiences with someone who follows Jesus. 65% of them said they knew a follower of Jesus, and 45% of them had said that they had talked with them about faith. And you know what was the number one thing that respondents said they were hoping for in a conversation with a Christian? 
the top one that they were longing for was that they would have a Christian who would listen without judgment. Number two, following it was that they would be honest about their own doubts. And then the third was not forcing a conclusion. And finally, someone who would care about them as a person. What do they want from a Christian when they talk to them? To be heard. Honesty, gentleness, care. They want kindness. Unfortunately, that's not what people of no faith always find. And see, that's our deeper and greater issue. Outside of that reputational deficit, we lack kindness towards God, towards others, and even ourselves. Harsh is what most easily comes out of us when we are squeezed by the stresses and disappointments of our lives. This is not the way God intended for humanity to live. Harshness and bitterness are part of what, God, uh, what Paul will call in Galatians the old humanity. Our lives apart from Jesus. These are behaviors that cause us to dehumanize people, that destroy relationships, and entire communities. And what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians, is specifically in Galatians chapter 5, he's teaching us that Jesus has actually put all of these types of characteristics, there's a slide for this, um, to death on the cross. So that when anybody trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence on the Spirit, the life of Jesus becomes theirs and produces the fruit of the Spirit. And so you'll see in this slide, this picture of uh, all these things, the old humanity, selfishness, division, envy, murder, idolatry, sexual immorality. Paul will list all of these things and contrast them to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, all these things have been crucified in Jesus, and those of us who put our trust in Him and depend on the Spirit begin through our lives to see this fruit of goodness, of patience, of kindness, gentleness, love, joy, all of these different things. But if this is what happens, then how do we explain our own harshness this week? This past month or throughout our life? If we identify, even if we do identify as a follower of Jesus, how do we explain that? Let me offer four reasons why we're harsh. Number one, we become consumed with ourselves. We're so consumed with ourselves that we see people, we'll see people when we're like this, as projects to complete or threats to our sense of peace and control. We'll be in a hurry to get things done. And hurry, as John Marcomo will write, is antithetical to love. This is why Paul, when he writes in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about love. He says love is patient and love is kind. See, if you live a busy life, it's so easy to have this narrow focus on your priorities and plans for the week. But the minute that that gets interrupted, someone just needs to tell you something, someone's going through something, there's something that begins to, inside of you, feel very uneasy. Not just uneasy, but unsettled. And you start going, hmm, I can tolerate this for a little bit. But then we begin to feel kind of irritable. Restless, the longer it goes. That tapping starts to get faster. You're trying to find a way not to express what you're feeling within you until you finally snap. And maybe you just cut the conversation short, or maybe you actually demonstrate that. 
to your faith. See, people, when you live consumed with yourself and your own ways and your own life, stop being humans, and instead they just become nuisances. And when we're busy and consumed with ourselves and our own plans, it's nearly impossible to pay attention, to be present and kind to the people right in front of you. And what this is is really a failure to live in the story of God. Because we're living in another story when we live like this. Where we are the protagonist. Where we've made ourselves the focus and not Jesus and his love. We've said, I'm better at being the author of my life than you are. I'm better at being in charge than you are. And the way you are doing things is, good for, is not good for me. So I'm going to take control of the plot. The second reason is we've grown numb to our pain and the pain of others. Over life, we've been exposed to so many different disappointments and pain and sadness. We'll hear, what will have happened is we'll hear a friend, a distant friend now maybe. You were close at one point, but now you're not. And they're going through something challenging and tough. But you don't think to reach out. You're like, oh, I got to take care of this. I'm busy. I'll make, they'll be okay. There's someone else who will check in. You don't think of how to help them. Cognitively, you know it's terrible that they're going through a hard time, but you still very easily move on. Some of us have experienced harsh parents, bosses, leaders, even friends, and you were wounded. And yet that hasn't really been resolved. So instead, you grew numb. And so now, without uh, intending it, you've become harsh. Because it's what you experienced when you were younger at a certain point in your life, and now you are actually embodying it, and you don't recognize it. So you can hear the cries of another, you can hear the struggles of others, and actually dismiss them. You don't actually feel very moved. You minimize their pain. So what, you'll say? They, we all suffer. It's hard for everybody. Stop talking about it. We all have our own issues. Get over it. The irony is when we're doing that, even if we're just saying it in here, we're repeating what we heard at some point in our own life, what someone actually said to us when we were looking for kindness and empathy from someone else. And we're telling others to get over it. All the while in our own lives, we actually have not gotten over our own hurts. And so the cycle of dehumanizing others by dismissing their pain continues. Number three, we don't believe we can make a difference. This is the cost of living in an age of a never-ending news cycle of events that take place all around the world where we hear about tragedies and corruptions in places we didn't even know existed until we read about it in the news. And places you don't actually have access to and places you feel like there's no real way to help. And I don't think we paid enough attention to the effects of that on us as human beings. To the things that we consume, they'll shape us. The stories, the news, the books, articles, movies, songs, ideas, all of these things that we allowed into our sphere of influence shape us. And what do you think happens when over many, many years you're exposed to tons of different news of events of suffering, but you don't have an outlet to help? Over time, you begin to think that you actually can't do anything, that it's impossible, that it's too hard, and that the things that are being offered are far too simplistic have too many unintended negative consequences that they aren't actually worth doing and trying to do anything about. So we're better off not meddling. We're, we believe the lie that we're powerless to help. Remember, number four is we've never experienced God's kindness or we've actually forgotten what the kindness of God is like. And this is where I want to camp. 
Because the Bible outlines that God himself is kind. The Bible outlines that he is kind, that God is the king of the cosmos, and he is a kind king. And that when you enter into his presence, you are standing before the kindest being in all of the universe. That there is no one kinder, more gentle, more loving than God himself. And if you've never experienced the kindness of God, if you've gone so long that you've actually forgotten what the kindness of God is like, you'll have a small imagination for the care and compassion and kindness that is possible for you and for others. And harshness will be your all-too-common experience in life. You cannot live the life Jesus came to bring without this ongoing encounter with his kindness. You cannot live the life that Jesus came to bring without an ongoing encounter with his kindness. This word kindness in Greek is pronounced krestos. Christos. And the word for being kind is very similar. It's Christotes. There are, very, there are a few places where we see this word come up in scriptures in the New Testament, outside of our passage here in Galatians 5. I want to read a couple to you. One is in Titus 3, and then the second will be in Romans 2, and there's a slide for it. Romans 3, verses 4 and 5 read, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And Romans 5 read, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Dane Ortland. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, he offers a helpful definition for kindness. He says this, The Greek word for kindness means a desire to do what is in your power to prevent discomfort in another. Very simple, but it's helpful. The desire to do what is in your power to prevent discomfort in another. See, there's something fundamentally relational about kindness. It's oriented towards the other. And this is what God's kindness is. His desire is to do all that is in his power to rescue, restore, forgive you. That's what he's done through Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus died for you. He laid down his life for you out of love. And the Bible says he didn't come and die for you when you were at your best, when you were at your most gentle, your most loving, your most patient, but when you were at your worst, when you were your most harsh. And the kindness that is talked about when it talks about God's kindness is not the regular run-of-the-mill kindness. It's not something you can conjure up. This divine, tender-hearted kindness is otherworldly. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What God longs to express to you is his kindness, and then in turn have you express kindness to others. This isn't a new thing about God. This has always been who God is. 
It's not like in the New Testament you discover that God is kind and the old you're like he's not. That's not what's going on. In fact, if you read in the Old Testament, there's kindness and love are always closely connected, like they're intertwined. And the word that is often used is this word hesed in, in Hebrew. There's no English word that fully captures the word hesed and its varied meanings. But in Exodus 34, God makes himself, his character known to Moses. And he, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, abounding in hesed. He calls his people in Micah 6, verse 8. He's, he calls them to do justice, to love hesed, or to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see that it's part of his character, but he wants his people to walk in this way, to choose it, to do love. This is why kindness is a fruit of the Spirit of God. It's the kindness of God manifesting in your life or expressing itself in your life through your life and personality. God always intended for humanity to be recipients of his kindness who then in turn express it to those around them. And you and I struggle to be the kind of people who are kind apart from his kindness first, which is why God sent us his son, Jesus. And it is why when Jesus comes and he teaches his disciples, he says, abide in me and I in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The invitation from Jesus, if you're going to be someone who is kind, and have all of the other fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, is that you abide in Him. How do we become people who are kind and not harsh? You need to come to Him. You need to come to Jesus and then come again and again and again. Listen to what Jesus will say to us in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Some of you will know this passage, maybe even memorize it. Come to me, says Jesus, all you who are weary and burdened. I don't know about you, but um, I've just felt like burdened uh, this week by how unkind I can be and how quick I am to become harsh when I am consumed with myself. When I am living in a hurry. And Jesus says, if you are burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. And then in verse 30, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that word, easy, it's that same word, Christos, or kind. You could also translate that word, for my yoke is kind. Yoke is this agricultural word. It's a symbol of a heavy crossbar laid in on an oxen that would force them to drag farming equipment through a field. And Jesus is using that symbol of a yoke and saying, come to me and I will give you a yoke 
of kindness that will rest on your shoulders as you work and do the different things in life. Come to me, and I won't just give you any random yoke. I will give you my own yoke. Learn from me and begin to experience the kindness of my Father in heaven. It's a kindness that I have enjoyed since the foundation of the cosmos. And I, since before the foundation of the cosmos, and I want you to experience what it is like. Because it isn't heavy. It's not ill-fitting. It's light. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lonely, says that what Jesus is doing here is it's like telling someone who is drowning that they need to put on the burden of a life jacket. And rather than hear them say, oh, of course, thank you, you saved me, they shout back, no way, not me. It's hard enough out here in these waters as it is. The last thing I need is carrying the burden of a life jacket on my body in these stormy seas. And I was say, that's what we're all like, confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. We'll go on to say, only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having started the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Only as we drink the kindness of the heart of Christ Will we leave that wake wherever we go? I read that and I think that's such a beautiful picture and yet there's this part of me that as I've studied and lived through in this passage just felt like how short I fall of the kindness of God towards others. Not just once in a while, but Daily. And the other night I was reading uh, with my son. We're going through the Chronicles of Narnia. And we're on like the fourth book, the Prince of Caspian, Prince Caspian. And there was these two stories that followed one another and if, uh, between, about these two sisters, Lucy and Susan. And how they failed, but what happened when they came before Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion in the books. See, Aslan, the Christ figure, he recommissions Lucy to do something she's previously failed to do. She doesn't believe she can do it. She's telling him, no one's going to believe me that if I deliver this message, no one's going to believe me because they didn't the last time. And then it says this, Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face, but there must have been magic in his mane. She could feel lion strength going into her and quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan. I'm ready now. And Aslan said, Now you are a lioness, and now all Narnia will be renewed. And shortly after, she, Lucy was right. They didn't really believe her, and the person who believed her the least was her sister, Susan, about what Aslan had asked Lucy to pass on. But eventually, Susan has to stand before Aslan, and she doesn't want to. She feels ashamed over the way she's lived, over her failure, and she's not sure what to say to Aslan. And Lucy tries to encourage her and say, hey, 
you, uh, I don't think you have to say too much. You can just go to him. And then Aslan calls her by name. And he says to her, you have listened to fears, child. You have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. And I read that feeling what I felt this past week. And I couldn't help but notice that this is the heart of Christ for us. That when we come before him, we cannot help but be changed. That Lucy is afraid, and what she does is she comes into his main and finds strength and courage to do what she's called to do. That Susan is ashamed and afraid, and she's been living in it. And what, she do, what Aslan says is, come and let me breathe on you. Forget your fears. It is in Jesus' presence that our fears and failures are are relieved with the very breath and power of God. And the closer you get to him, the more whole we are made. The more we are able to be part of that new humanity that God intended for us to be. And that's why we need to come to him repeatedly because we will repeatedly fall short because we need him. And if you and I do this, if we come to him regularly in faith, through things like scripture and prayer in silence and in the regular mundane things where we invite him to be with us as we work or drive or serve others, mindful of his presence and help, his incomparable grace and kindness, something happens to us. Rather than being consumed with ourselves, we find ourselves consumed with Jesus. And you become consumed with him. You begin to see people as both beautiful and broken, people to be loved. The interruptions become these invitations to ask God, how do you want me to respond to them, Lord? How do you want me to respond in this moment? Rather than dismissing the pain of others or yourself, he begins to awaken a compassion in you for your own pain and the pain of others. You feel so much deeper, you also hurt so much deeper. It's because you're beginning to experience his kindness and it's changing you. Rather than believing the lie that you are powerless to do something, he will empower you to see and do something to help meet the needs of others. That's already happening among us. I know it is. And you will come to him repeatedly. Rather than avoid him because you're too busy or you're indifferent, you will come to him repeatedly to drink from his endless stream of kindness. It won't be a burden. It won't be a duty. It'll be a delight. Because you already know what he's like. That is why Lucy throws herself into his mane. And the invitation for us is to throw ourselves into Christ. A few years ago, um, actually almost to the week, uh, nine years ago, uh, Ange, Kenny, myself, Joel, Sarah, they helped me concoct a plan to propose to Lindsay. And I wanted to do it up at Elfin Lakes, which is in Garibaldi Park. And the plan, it almost, everything almost went to plan, minus not booking a campsite and almost having to turn back uh, because we couldn't get a place to camp, but that's a different story. Everything went uh, really well, and we had a lot of fun. But when we were all going to head back, I, uh, I, just, I was really thirsty, and uh, you see there, there's these two lakes. This bigger one that you can see that's closer is the swimming one. The one farther away is the drinking one. You don't mix those two up. You don't swim in the drinking lake and vice versa, right? So um, 
we were camping just past that, and the water that you drink from there, it's just, it's okay. It's clean, for sure. It's clean, but um, it was kind of like not very cold, and it was smoking hot there, a really hot, hot day. And I remember where I wanted to propose, if you go to the next picture, um, you, to the left of the mountain with a bunch of snow on it, there's this beautiful lookout. It's called the Gargoyles. That's where I wanted to propose to Lindsay. And on your way up, there is this stream of water that shoots out, and it is like ice-cold water, like the most refreshing water. I remember coming down the mountain, drinking my water, and filling it up with that. And it, it, was, it was amazing. And when I compared those two, the lake, the little pond there, probably more like a pond, that just sitting still, or this water that was cold and refreshing, even though it was 20 minutes away from our campsite, I was like, I'm going up there to get that water because it's way better than what's in front of me. And I just remember thinking how refreshing it was, and I kind of startled our group because I didn't tell them I was going to go do this, so they thought I was missing. Lindsay wasn't too happy about that. Right after she said yes to marrying me, I disappear. Um, So... But that picture of these two waters, this cold and refreshing one, it might cost you a little more. But it was so refreshing, I still remember it to this day. And that is what we are invited to do, to regularly return to the streams, these endless streams of kindness that are available in Jesus. And truthfully, this this thing of returning to him is probably our hardest because our desires our tendencies to actually want to do something in our own wisdom and power and that's pride that's actually our old humanity at work in us but if you believe he is kind and that he rewards those who believe who come to him then you can do that today and experience his kindness which renews refreshes restores and enables you to share that with others Because of Jesus, we know that there is nothing in the way of accessing the kindness of God. No matter how harsh you have been this week, or month, or year, or throughout your life, towards God, towards others, towards yourself, you can come and receive kindness. And there was this passage I was thinking about this week from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, where it says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He waits to be gracious to you. Why is the Lord waiting? It was because God's people had been unwilling to come to him and trust him. God's people knew God. They knew what he had done for them. They knew that he had saved them from something and for something else. But they had chosen to find their security, their strength, and their sense of well-being not in God, but in Egypt and their military might. They refused to drink from the stream of God's kindness. And so God told them in, in, in Isaiah 30, he says, You carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit. And so they won't bring you any help or an advantage in your time of need. Because that was the Spirit's work in their life, or the flesh work in their life. They were choosing to live out of that. It was sin, because it wasn't leading to life, but to demise. It, It would lead to collapse. And some of us carry out plans that are not God's in our life. Some of us tasted His kindness and compassion, but it's been so long that you feel dry 
and thirsty. And so you leave awake not a feeling like like this aroma of heaven, but instead it's a stench of hurried exhaustion, impatience, and anxiousness. And that stench is what those closest to you will encounter. Sandy won't smell my stench from that back corner over there. But my wife, my kids, my parents, my closest friends, they will. Because I'm regularly encountering them. What is that aroma that someone will encounter? For you, it may be your kids, your spouse, your, your roommates, your coworkers. It's happening because we're living off of our own strength. So we're responding in the flesh, out of our gut, raw emotions, raw reactions. And it's not the way that God wants. But the remarkable thing is that God waits. That the Lord longs to be gracious to you. It says in the NIV, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. See, the thing is, God told them, look, if you live it this way, you will build up this wall in your life that will be tall. And it might be okay. It might look okay for many years. But one day in an instant, cracks will form and a huge bulge will protrude and then it will just collapse on itself. And when that day of collapse comes, when you finally come back to your senses and turn to me, he says, I will have been waiting. And when you turn to me, I will renew you. And the thing is, for you and I, we don't have to wait until our lives fall apart. Our relationships are broken because we've been so harsh. We can turn today. We can recognize that deep within the heart of God is this compassion and kindness towards our brokenness and suffering. And if you don't get this, you'll always think of him as upset, as the irritable father, as the one who punishes by silence or worse. And maybe say, well, maybe, yeah, he, he does come, but he has to pinch his nose and cover it up because of how sinful, unclean, selfish, angry, distracted, impatient, you list whatever the thing is you want to describe about your life. He'll walk in before me, but he'll hold his nose up and plug it because he can't tolerate the stench of my life. And that's not who he longs to be. He longs to be gracious to you. He waits to be gracious to you. He's the one who has entered in to the brokenness and suffering of humanity and he does something about it. He gets it. And he does something about it through the cross. And so the question for you and I, not just today, but each day of our lives and each moment of our lives and all of our failures is, will we come to him? Will we come to him and receive that kindness?